Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, and mental health conditions that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13 and for those struggling with disordered eating. When medical treatments fail us, the impact can be detrimental. Patients experience no relief or even worse, develop mysterious new symptoms. After months of suffering, they may lose hope or stop treatment altogether, or they may turn to experimental medicine and so-called miracle cures. Linda Hazard preyed on this hopelessness, using desperation to manipulate willing victims. She'd take patients in, prescribe her rigorous alternative treatment, and over several weeks, starve them to death. It's possible that at some point in her life, Linda genuinely intended to help hopeless patients. She seemed to believe in her own miracle cure. Somewhere along the way, however, her intentions were poisoned by greed. Before long, She devolved from prescribing alternative treatment to personally ensuring the miracle her patients sought never, ever happened. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to assist Alistair today with some medical insight into our final installment of the case of Linda Burfield Hazard, a physician, dietitian, and osteopath who had a miracle cure with deadly results. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, whose dangerous treatments killed over a dozen people in the early 1900s. Last time, we covered her early interest in medicine, her journey to the fasting cure, and the murders that ensued. In this episode, we'll discuss Linda's most famous victims, British heiresses Claire and Dora Williamson. We'll also track how all the money and evidence in the world, and even prison time, couldn't stop Linda's deadly ideas from claiming more lives. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. By late 1910, 42-year-old Linda Hazard had reached a milestone. Having already caused the deaths of multiple patients, she now had enough money to build a health sanitarium in Olala, Washington. There, she would finally have a practice away from the scrutiny of Seattle civilians. However, the heavy rains of the Pacific Northwest slowed progress. To make a living in the meantime, Linda leaned into fruitful correspondences with inquiring fans, encouraging them to visit her for treatment. Over the years, people all over the world had bought and read her book. Some even saw it as a saving grace. Two such readers 
were 33-year-old Claire Williamson and her older sister, Dora. In September 1910, they wrote a letter of inquiry to Linda. Claire explained that she suffered mysterious pelvic pain and saw various physicians over the years in hopes of a diagnosis. One doctor had told her she had a tipped back uterus and inflamed ovaries. The doctor's observations are used to identify a number of medical conditions. A tipped back uterus is also known as a retroverted uterus. This is when the organ slants backward towards the rectum rather than forward towards the gut. It's a relatively common medical finding. In fact, it doesn't usually cause problems unless someone has a compounding disorder, like endometriosis, for example. This is a condition where the lining of the uterus, or endometrium, grows on pelvic structures where it shouldn't, which can cause great discomfort, especially during a woman's period. The ovaries are particularly vulnerable to endometriosis because of their proximity to the uterus, and if affected, they'd become severely inflamed and, over time, potentially scarred. As such, endometriosis is one possibility that could connect Claire's symptoms. Unfortunately, complex female issues were far less understood at the time, so it makes sense that she had to visit multiple physicians. But Claire wasn't alone in her mystery ailments. Her sister, 37-year-old Dora Williamson, believed she had rheumatism. Like with Claire, no doctor had been able to provide an adequate treatment plan. Learning about Claire and Dora's health issues, Linda was delighted. Not only was it evident that the sisters were desperate for a cure, but they were also wealthy. Orphaned in adolescence, their parents had left behind their fortune to their daughters. Now, Linda hoped it would become hers. She responded to their letter, further singing the praises of her fasting method and how she could treat them in person. The women took it to heart, and Linda maintained correspondence with Claire throughout the remainder of 1910. During this time, Claire's belief in Linda's miracle cure only grew. So when Linda urged the women to come receive treatment at her new sanitarium, Wilderness Heights, in early 1911, Claire was eager to accept the invite. Though the sanitarium wasn't completed yet, Linda prepared accommodations for the sisters near her practice in Seattle. In turn, the two women promptly secured travel plans. The Williamsons abandoned the relatives they were visiting in sunny California, began their fasts, and traveled north without telling anyone where they were going. They feared being ridiculed for their belief in alternative medicine. After all, such practices were stigmatized. Though with individuals like Linda professing miracle cures all over, there was good reason for public skepticism. Nevertheless, at 11 a.m. on February 27, 1911, Claire and Dora arrived at Linda's office. The self-proclaimed doctor didn't waste any time convincing them of her qualifications. Instead, she immediately delivered private massages, pummeling their heads, backs, and foreheads. It wasn't a relaxing experience, but Linda insisted it was a crucial part of her method. With these massages, Along with daily walks and enemas, Linda promised to heal the sisters in just a month's time, their own medical miracle. Though what the sisters experienced next wasn't exactly miraculous. Days into their Seattle stay, the sisters began spontaneously fainting. While this was the first major side effect of their starvation, the sisters didn't view it this way. Instead, they believed Linda's explanation. The poison in their bodies was simply fighting back against their efforts for health. As the sisters grew too weak to leave their apartment building, Linda began sending nurses to do house visits. One of them was 40-year-old Nellie Sherman. Nellie's visits became a regular staple in Claire and Dora's lives, her job was to administer their daily enemas. These started off at 30 minutes, but before long, they were lasting up to three hours. 
Cleansing enemas are meant to be held in the rectum for a short time in order to flush the colon to relieve constipation. The therapeutic fluid should be held in for around 10 minutes, if possible, before the patient evacuates their bowels. The enema effect lasts for about an hour at most, and during this time, if they're lucky, someone may find themselves visiting the bathroom multiple times. Enemas lasting up to three hours indicate that Linda and Nellie's technique was wildly unsafe, and the long sessions may have been the result of excessive fluids or the specific makeup of the solution. It's never a good idea to overdo this kind of medical intervention. Prolonged or overly intense treatments can lead to problems like weakening or perforation of the bowel and a dangerous loss of fluids and electrolytes. These daily drawn-out procedures were really unhealthy, Alistair. In addition to the disturbingly long treatments, the pain both Williamson's reported suggests the enemas might not have been serving them the way Linda promised. Still, nearly every day, Dora and Claire braved the anguish, wincing in discomfort as they kneeled in the bathtub. To them, curing their ails meant being willing to endure the worst. But they couldn't have conceived what they truly signed up for. In mid-March, Linda came to the apartment to check on the sisters and, oddly, asked about their personal affairs. She pushed for information about their financial holdings and soon discovered that both sisters were in full control of their inheritance. This pleased Linda, who offered to store their valuables. While the sisters felt their apartment was safe enough for storage, Linda was relentless, and the sisters eventually gave in. Linda collected valuable items from around the apartment, even pulling the rings off of Dora's fingers. But her final move was the dirtiest. Linda told the sisters she'd safeguard their land deeds too, assuring them the papers would stay locked in her office until she could bring them to the bank. The sisters turned them over. While one might claim their compliance was willing, they were in no state to be making choices on behalf of their estate. They struggled to walk between their beds and the bathroom. Still, Linda left the apartment with deeds to property in Vancouver, Canada. As weeks of Linda's treatment turned to a month, neighbors in the building noticed that the sisters were rapidly deteriorating. They no longer walked the building's hallways without their nurse Nellie's support. Delirious in her suffering, Dora often said things that no one could understand. Rather than recognizing this as a sign of life-threatening starvation, Linda simply told Dora that the poison had been in her brain all along. With no food to fuel her body's energy needs, it isn't surprising that Dora wasn't thinking clearly. The body is incredibly resilient, and it can actually function normally for quite a long time before undernourishment takes a serious toll on its natural physiology. However, at four weeks and counting, Dora was absolutely experiencing some changes in her neurons. With such low blood sugar from her starvation and enemas, Dora would have been experiencing neuroglycopenia, or a glucose deficiency in the brain. Because the brain relies largely on glucose to keep its neurons firing, it's no wonder that Dora would have had difficulties in forming coherent sentences. Prolonged or chronic neuroglycopenia can lead to things like permanent brain damage, chemical changes in the brain that affect behavior and mood, confusion, unconsciousness, and death. If she didn't start eating safely soon, Dora's delirium would eventually take a lethal turn. Dora grew so ill, Nurse Nellie felt called to action. On March 29, 1911, Nellie secretly solicited an opinion from a doctor and was informed that if the Williamson sisters didn't eat something immediately, they'd likely die. Nellie relayed this message, but the sisters didn't listen. They'd made it over a month into their fasts. Nothing would shake their determination to heal. Perhaps suspecting that Nurse Nellie was attempting to poach her two most lucrative victims, Linda swooped in. 
Though they'd passed the four-week threshold she had advertised, Linda urged the Williamson sisters to keep going. She told them that she was ready to transfer them to her sanitarium in Olala, where she could tend to them regularly. The sisters agreed to the move, and transportation was arranged. On the morning of April 21, 1911, Dora and Claire were carried out of their apartment on stretchers, looking skeletal. Each weighed as much as children. In ambulances, the two sisters headed for Seattle's ferry landing. Despite the stretchers and ambulance, they were thrilled. They'd reached their first stop on the way to Olala and Wilderness Heights. At the pier, a stranger approached and introduced himself as Linda's attorney. He directed Claire to write a letter to her longtime nurse, Margaret Conway, allocating her wealth in the case of her death. It was a morbid request, but Linda had convinced Claire that poison antagonized her body and her situation was more dire than it first appeared. Fearing the worst, she went along with the attorney's request. She wrote that if she died, she wished to donate 25 pounds a year to go to Linda's sanitarium, Wilderness Heights. She also requested that Linda Hazard cremate her remains. As the attorneys stowed the signed statement, the Williamson sisters boarded the ferry, blithely unaware that Claire had just signed her own death warrant. Coming up, Dora and Claire enter the sanitarium. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In April 1911, 43-year-old Linda Hazard directed her husband Sam to pay a visit to 33-year-old Claire Williamson. The emaciated woman and her sister had moved into Linda's secluded sanitarium a few days earlier and were still getting settled. But Dr. Linda Hazard wasted no time. She'd seen plenty of her patients die before and knew the warning signs. Well into the second month of her fast, Claire looked closer to death with each passing day. So, per Linda's prodding, Sam Hazard climbed up to Claire's attic room and offered to compose a letter for her on his typewriter. It would confirm that she entered Wilderness Heights willingly due to illness, and Linda would not be blamed if Claire died. In her weakened state, Claire apparently obliged. It's possible that she too sensed she was nearing the end of her life. For whatever reason, she didn't think to end Linda's rigorous treatment. However, she did make attempts to contact the outside world. After giving her consent to Sam to have the letter written, Claire requested to send a message to her longtime nurse, Margaret Conway, who was like a mother to her and Dora. Half a world away, in Melbourne, Australia, Margaret received a cablegram from Claire dated April 30th, 1911. The message read, Come, S.S. Maramar, 
May 8th, first class, Claire. It was a brief transmission, but Margaret feared the worst. She knew Claire wouldn't ask her to come so far if her circumstances weren't urgent. So, in May 1911, Margaret did as Claire requested and boarded the boat. Later that month, as Margaret Conway approached the coast of Hawaii, she received two more communications from Claire. The first was a cable message composed on May 17th. It said both sisters were doing well. The other was a letter that should have arrived weeks earlier. Dated May 2nd, the writings sang the praises of Linda and her husband, claiming they were taking wonderful care of her. Somewhat shockingly, however, Claire mentioned that Dora's health was declining. Confused by the contradictions within the notes, Margaret hoped her arrival on June 1st would clear some things up. However, upon reaching the harbour in Vancouver, Canada, Margaret was only more concerned. Neither sister was there to meet her. Instead, Sam Hazard greeted her with ominous news. Dora was doing far worse than Claire had written, and Claire was dead. Claire, who had just recently sent a gushing cablegram insisting she was well, something didn't add up. Margaret urged Sam to bring her to Dora, but they had to stay overnight in Vancouver. It was too long a journey. This brought Linda time to convene with another one of Claire's relatives. Back in Seattle, Linda met with John Herbert, the sister's uncle who lived in Portland. His proximity made him their most accessible family member, so he was upset to learn that neither Claire nor Dora had made efforts to contact him during their stay in Seattle. Linda said the women wanted to keep their treatments private from their family. Then she opened her bag. Linda emptied a pouch on the table, unveiling a pile of Claire's disembodied organs. They were smelly, small, and shriveled. Linda claimed Claire had died from cirrhosis of the liver. Here was proof. Cirrhosis of the liver is a late stage of liver disease. Typically, people are more at risk if they drink excessive amounts of alcohol, have hepatitis, diabetes, or suffer from a collection of other pre-existing conditions, none of which seem to apply to Claire. Cirrhosis does in fact usually cause the liver to shrink and shrivel, so this part of Linda's explanation makes some sense. This is because the disease causes scar tissue to form in the liver, which puts pressure on its blood vessels. This leads to an interruption in blood flow, reducing oxygenation, resulting in organ shrinkage, hardening, and cellular death. However, Claire was young, and such severe cirrhosis would have been really rare for someone her age. Although it was a different time, most people who die from cirrhosis today are north of their mid-40s. Furthermore, if she did in fact die from cirrhosis, her liver would be noticeably compromised in comparison to other organs. However, they were all similarly shrunken, which is indicative of starvation. With what we knew of Claire's prior health, the cirrhosis explanation seems very unlikely. Though unsettled by the news, John didn't have the medical knowledge to refute Linda's claims. He did, however, have the knowledge to question her next move. Linda showed John a letter, allegedly written by Claire back in April. In it, Claire relieved Linda of all blame in the case that she died. Oddly, the statement wasn't signed by Claire, and considering the fact that Sam typed it, it's unclear if any of the written assurances were Claire's actual opinions. Even stranger, when Linda took John to view Claire's corpse, it looked nothing like Claire. The dead woman's figure wasn't nearly as emaciated as he'd expected, and the hair color was just wrong. John got the itching feeling that Linda had gotten a decoy cadaver to escape any criticisms. 
It didn't take nurse Margaret Conway long to arrive at the same conclusions John did. When Linda showed her the same tiny organs, Margaret was confounded. Even weirder, when she talked to Margaret, Linda claimed the blood in one of Claire's heart valves had turned to powder in her fingers and blamed drugs doctors had given Claire as a kid. After death, the body goes through a process that breaks down its organs and other structures. There are also changes that occur with the body's fluids, like the blood. One thing that happens is post-mortem clotting, which is when the blood pools in the veins and arteries. As the heart is no longer pumping this blood around the body, it becomes stagnant and begins to clot. Going out on a huge limb, it may have even been possible that Linda crushed a dried blood clot in her fingers, one that somehow got trapped in Claire's heart valve. However, it's way more likely the case that Linda was lying. There's also no reason that past medication use of any sort would render someone's post-mortem blood powdery. This certainly must have seemed suspicious to someone with such a medical background like Margaret. Margaret didn't argue with Linda's claims, and the two set out to the funeral home. If she had reservations, she kept them to herself for the moment, though those reservations were about to boil over. At the funeral home, she had a chance to say goodbye to Claire's body. But just like John, Margaret saw no resemblance between Claire and the corpse. With the rising suspicion that Linda was not to be trusted, Margaret sought out Dora, still at Wilderness Heights. When Margaret arrived, she pulled Dora aside and suggested that Linda's methods were killing her. Though her own sister had died, Dora continued with her treatments, insistent that they were saving her. So Margaret stayed on the Olala property, hoping she'd convince Dora with time. Linda didn't take well to that. Perhaps as a slight to Margaret, Linda forced her to stay in the same attic bedroom where Claire had died. After a few weeks, Margaret began to see how it was easy for people to become captivated by Linda. The woman had a no-nonsense way about her, one that carried natural authority. But Margaret remained unswayed. In fact, she only grew more alarmed by the growing sense of danger she felt when, rifling through papers in Sam's office, she found damning evidence of Linda and Sam's crookery. It was a document, dated May 27, 1911, and signed by Dora, it granted all power of attorney to Sam, giving him control over a portion of her assets. Confused, Margaret went to Dora, who explained that she had wanted to send money to her uncle Jose in Toronto earlier that spring. Too weak to do it herself, Dora leapt at Sam's offer to help, so she signed the paper. But Sam never got around to sending Jose any money. Instead, he plied Dora with excuses. Apparently, Sam had used the power of attorney to transfer the money to himself. Dora was furious at the revelation. Not only had she lost her sister, she'd lost control of her livelihood. This may have been the moment that Dora began to understand that Dr. Linda Hazard was no savior. If anything, she was a thief. That conviction only hardened when Margaret spotted Linda wearing Claire's old clothes. Then, Linda informed Margaret of an issue with the post office. Due to an order from the postmaster, all mailboxes in Olala had to be locked. If Margaret wanted to send out any letters, she could give them to Sam or Linda. Margaret called the bluff, and Sam told her he'd mail her letter the next day. Margaret doubted it. Sure enough, after giving their mail to Sam, Margaret and Dora didn't get any letters for over two weeks. One day, Margaret happened to leave the house at the same time the postage carrier arrived and asked him about the recent shutdown. The man looked at her, confused. 
Linda had made the whole thing up. Naturally, Margaret confronted Linda. Linda lashed out and didn't apologize. It was a quick lesson for Margaret. The only way to free herself was to feign obedience while she convinced Dora to leave. Before long, Margaret had been trapped at Wilderness Heights for a month. When Margaret and Dora joined a handful of patients to watch the fireworks display on the 4th of July, a patient tapped Margaret on the shoulder. She knew Margaret wasn't a patient and begged her for help. The starved woman referred to all of Linda's clients as prisoners. Then she asked Margaret to help her leave Olala. Despite the chilling conversation, Margaret wouldn't leave unless Dora was ready until another encounter pushed her over the edge. One of Linda's nurses pulled Margaret aside and told her about the case of Earl Edward Erdman, Linda's patient who had kept the detailed food journal before his death. The nurse showed Margaret newspaper clippings from the case. When Margaret read the words, the man's digestive organs were of infantile size, her blood ran cold. That's exactly what Linda had said about Claire. The nurse insisted that Margaret get Dora out of Alala before it was too late. By July 18, 1911, Margaret had packed her bags and prepared to take Dora off the property. But Linda intervened. She raged, spouting off that it wasn't safe for Dora to travel. Far worse, Linda claimed that as Dora's appointed guardian, only she could allow Dora to leave Wilderness Heights. Margaret was shocked, and so was Dora. She had no idea this change had happened or when. She sent a cable to John Herbert in Portland right away, asking for his help. The next morning, John arrived at Linda's Seattle office where Linda was working that day. He confronted her about the guardianship issue and Linda said she would consult her lawyer. But John wasn't satisfied. That afternoon, he boated to Alala. At Wilderness Heights, he confronted Linda again. But she wouldn't let Dora leave until their debts were settled. Linda had the audacity to demand money for Dora's treatments. She claimed Dora owed her $700, or around $20,000 today. John argued with Linda for hours before he reluctantly offered Linda traveler's checks. It was the only way to get his living niece off the grounds of Wilderness Heights. Three days later, on July 22, 1911, Dora boarded a small steamship with Margaret and her Uncle John. She'd been at the sanitarium for 93 days and left it without a sister. As Dora headed for Tacoma, Washington, she had vengeance on her mind. Coming up, Dora, Margaret, and John fight to bring Claire justice. Now, back to the story. At the end of July 1911, 37-year-old Dora Williamson fled Dr. Linda Hazard's sanitarium in Olala, Wilderness Heights. Still weak, Dora settled in nearby Tacoma, Washington. Since her time in Linda's care, Dora struggled with nightmares, imagining that she was still in the small room where she'd suffered some of the worst moments of her life. She weighed only 60 pounds and needed her nurse Margaret's support to walk. And after 93 days of fasting, eating even small amounts of food proved difficult. After such a long time without adequate nourishment, Dora was lucky to be alive at all. At this point, even limited solid food would be very difficult for her to process. 
This is because after such a long time without eating, the digestive system becomes compromised and its filling capacity actually shrinks. The reasoning here is that the body's metabolism shifts from feeding off fat and glucose available in food to extract the sugar it needs from its own fat and muscle stores. The reintroduction of solid food would have been a shock to Dora's gastrointestinal tract and likely induced painful symptoms associated with indigestion, like bloating, nausea, heartburn, and feeling uncomfortably full. Nowadays, for someone who's been starved for this long, it usually takes around two months of a closely monitored diet for them to regain their optimal health. However, this timeline fluctuates depending on someone's age, weight, underlying health conditions, and how hydrated they were during their fast. Surely, this would have been a lengthier recovery in the early 1900s, given the limited medical and nutritional knowledge they had back then. Dora, unfortunately, had a long road ahead of her. Healing, however, meant more than eating again. In her heart of hearts, what Dora wanted more than anything was to bring her sister justice. A British citizen, she contacted the local embassy for help. Not long after, Dora, her nurse Margaret, and Uncle John Herbert met with the British vice consul at the Tacoma Hotel. Horrified that Kitsap County hadn't taken action, he contacted an American attorney who specialized in fraud cases. They, in turn, put pressure on the county to launch an investigation. Authorities in the state of Washington had long known about Dr. Linda Hazard. They were aware that patients died under her care and kept detailed notes on several cases that they tried and failed to bring to trial. It seemed proof was hard to come by when it came to Dr. Linda Hazard. But now, with Dora Williamson and Margaret Conway, they had a pair of living witnesses to Linda's deranged miracle cure. With the testimony about Claire's alleged murder, as well as the claims that Linda had stolen their jewelry and land deeds, Kitsap County authorities drew up a warrant for an arrest. On the afternoon of August 5, 1911, authorities detained Linda on charges of first-degree murder. She talked non-stop on the way to the jail, insisting that she had only lost 12 patients out of a thousand and that she was a martyr to the case of medical fasting. The authorities didn't care to hear her excuses. The trial of Linda Burfield Hazard for the murder of Claire Williamson began on January 15, 1912. It was a local sensation. Starvation Doctor made for a buzzy headline. And before long, Wilderness Heights gains the nickname Starvation Heights. As always, Linda refuted the murder allegations. She told journalists outside the courtroom she was innocent. She saw the trial as a battle between conventional medicine and natural methods, and she refused to take any responsibility for Claire's death. But it was all too easy for the prosecution to prove her guilt. There was the fact that Linda had kept Claire's clothing for herself, that she removed Claire's gold fillings and sold them for money, that she took possession of Claire's land deeds. But what truly swayed the courtroom was Claire's sister Dora's testimony. On January 19th, Dora took the stand and began a four-day recounting of the horrors she and her sister faced in Linda's care. She told of the grief she felt, the suffering she personally experienced as she starved, and the attempts both Linda and Sam had made to obtain her assets before and after Claire died. Two weeks later, on February 4, 1912, nearly a year after the sisters had first stepped foot into Linda's office, the jury reached a verdict. Linda Burfield Hazard was guilty of manslaughter, which meant that Linda was only found culpable for killing Claire unintentionally. Though it wasn't the murder charge Dora wanted, it would put Linda behind bars. On February 7th, 
Linda was sentenced to between two and 20 years of hard labor at the Washington State Penitentiary. However, she didn't go to jail right away. Though her medical license was revoked on July 1st, 1912, two people died under Linda's care in 1913. As a result, she was forced to testify at a coroner's inquest. But everyone knew that by the end of the year, she would already be in prison, so they didn't pursue the cases further. The fact that she continued to treat patients reinforces the fact that Linda never felt an ounce of remorse. But it also reveals that even public scrutiny and criminal charges aren't always enough to keep patients from pursuing bad practitioners in hopes of a miracle cure. While controversial, some doctors gravitate to more radical treatments, and some patients believe that experimental methods are the only kind that will heal them. I frequently encountered these patients throughout my medical career. I once had a patient who refused conventional treatment for constipation, and she took a very strange approach. This involved putting a couple of red potatoes where the sun doesn't shine, and, as a result, she needed to undergo a complicated rectal surgery. After the surgery, she was still constipated. I've also known terribly sick cancer patients who understandably wanted to avoid chemotherapy and ended up going with treatment options that have lofty promises but dismal outcomes. Some of these are the alkaline diet, light therapy, nutritional supplements, aromatherapy, and ozone therapy. Despite the danger in substituting legitimized treatment for unproven or disproven therapy, with any illness, it's important to recognize that it's ultimately up to the patient to decide their own care. If it's what someone needs in order to feel in some control over a devastating illness, this is their right and it must be respected. People may also turn to alternative treatments because they've exhausted traditional medical interventions and they're desperate. I'm sure this was one of the reasons patients continued to visit Linda, despite her manslaughter conviction. Though she was officially a criminal, she still had a strong hold on people and never expressed uncertainty about her cure. The magnetism that she had, along with her confidence, was a comforting quality for the right kind of person in the right situation. It didn't help that Linda maintained her innocence. During her intake as a prisoner in 1913, Linda was given a paper to record her personal effects. On the sheet, she crossed out the word convict and wrote, I did not commit any crime. But even in prison, Linda Hazard was a danger. Around 1913, a man who read Linda's book and tried to follow her method at home died of starvation. Despite the trial, Linda wouldn't do anything to stop potential victims from finding her book. In fact, she drafted another. And another. Linda also corresponded with fans of the book from her cell, recruiting her next victims. Perhaps it was all the time spent reading and writing that convinced the judge to let Linda off with her minimum sentence. Just two years after she was locked up, on December 19, 1915, 48-year-old Linda was released. Six months later, the governor granted her a pardon on the condition that she leave the country. Linda was happy to. Letters from an admirer had convinced her that Auckland, New Zealand would be an ideal place for her to set up a practice. Once there, she and Sam began advertising her services as a physician, dietitian, and osteopath. And once again, in a new city, Linda Hazard found new success. In 1917, 48-year-old Linda published another book. It was called Diet in Disease and Systemic Cleansing. For five years, Linda treated patients in Auckland. It seems that no recorded deaths occurred there, though it's unclear if that's because Linda didn't kill anyone 
or she'd become an expert at hiding it. Eventually, Linda came to miss the Pacific Northwest. So in 1920, she and Sam returned to the United States. Flouting the conditions of her pardon, Linda constructed a second sanitarium in Olala, just north of the original house. Even grander, the new building was three stories high. She also resumed her title of Dr. Hazard, even though she still didn't have a license. It seemed five years was long enough for most people to forget the crimes of the starvation doctor, even the governor of Washington state. Once her new sanitarium was built, Linda took to calling it a school of health. And she didn't confine her treatment to the new institution or even to Washington. In April 1922, police arrested Linda when they found her treating a patient in California and claiming she was a doctor. This violated the state's medical practice laws. Even still, Linda brushed herself off and continued to see patients charging high prices as she faced new criminal charges. Still claiming she had the miracle cure, Linda took her patients for everything they had. In the spring of 1925, a man named Leonard Ritter sold his farm to pay for treatment. After 84 days of fasting, he lost 68 pounds. Linda's treatment killed him. In the wake of Leonard's death, the authorities went after her again. She fought back, claiming she was a mercenary for her cause. She couldn't believe people had the audacity to call her a murderer, quote, for trying to help people. While it's unclear exactly what she was charged with, on March 27, 1925, Linda was found guilty. Her punishment was a $100 fine. She received no jail time. Linda was an outright danger, but only faced minor repercussions. A doctor today would never get away with what she did. Thankfully, there are now enough safeguards and protections in place to ensure patients aren't at risk of being treated by a doctor who's caused multiple deaths. Probably the most important protection is the progress made by the Federation of State Medical Boards, or FSMB, over the course of the 20th century. In particular, the FSMB strengthened the communication and cooperation between individual state medical boards and created the great and encompassing healthcare oversight we have today. Another layer of security is the immediate and easy access to the internet for information. In modern times, Linda's license would have been permanently revoked and the medical board would work with law enforcement to incarcerate her. Unfortunately, the early 1900s lacked the medical infrastructure that currently protects us. Even though she continued to practice medicine, the repeated hits to her reputation seemed to have finally cost Linda business in the 1930s. But nothing could stop her greed. In May 1935, a fire broke out at Wilderness Heights. After 67-year-old Linda gathered her patients outside the building, she merely watched as the culminating jewel of her life's work was engulfed in flames. She didn't try to salvage it. Nearby, Sam Hazard stopped bystanders from saving the beautiful handcrafted oak front doors. He didn't want them taken off. They were insured. Even without Wilderness Heights, Linda took on another patient in 1938. At 70 years old, her time of influence had ended. But even as old age and lethargy set upon her, Linda remained determined to prove to the world that her methods were a success. So she subjected herself to her own treatment regimen. At the end of June 1938, 70-year-old Linda Hazard died. Her cause of death? Starvation. 
she was her own final victim. Linda's story cautions against fad diets and cure-all methods. It's a healthy idea to seek medical advice from qualified licensed professionals before turning to unconventional or unregulated forms of therapy. Alternative medicine shouldn't be considered bad, and in fact, it is an important resource for patients seeking myriad complementary therapies. However, treatments with potentially negative outcomes should be avoided, especially if they lack scientific backing. Remember that old cliche, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Human beings have an intrinsic drive to stay alive. It's Darwinian. Sometimes those choices are found in miracle cures, but in reality, complicated health issues usually require complex solutions. People need to be wary of easy-fix options because, like Linda, they might not be beneficial to their well-being. Linda Hazard believed that she was pioneering a new health technique while making a name for herself as a missionary of medicine. She was willing to die for her cause. The tragedy is that so many others died at her hands first. Now nicknamed the Starvation Doctor, Linda Hazard will forever serve as a reminder of how greed can taint the intentions of even the most passionate healers and so-called miracle cures are rarely miraculous. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, among the many sources we used, we found the book Starvation Heights, a true story of murder and malice in the woods of the Pacific Northwest by Greg Olson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ellie Hart, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.